This is another iRaw podcast. Hi, welcome to Storytelling Animals, a podcast where we use books to help chart a course toward social and ecological justice. I'm your host, Dayton Martindale, and today my guest is Rachel E. Gross. She is the author of Vagina Obscura, an anatomical voyage, um, which is a book about a you know a wave of scientists, largely women scientists, um, who are basically changing how we understand the female reproductive system and how it works and, and what its role is um, and the exciting implications of that. Um, I should say from the start that, as Rachel says in her book, and as she'll explain in the interview, um, neither female nor reproductive is an all-inclusive term for what the female reproductive system does. Um, but as I said, we'll get into that later. Um, it's also, I think, a an important book uh, to discuss in this particular podcast where we often are talking about other animals and environmental issues um, because it kind of shows, and we'll talk about it toward the very beginning of the interview, how our understanding of uh, other species affects our understanding of ourselves and vice versa, how uh, patriarchal sexist prejudice within science um, can, can affect how we understand the rest of the, the natural world. Um, so, you know, the short version is different forms of oppression are connected. Um, the hope is that different forms of liberation are connected. Uh, this book also, since I conducted the interview, has been announced as part of the long list for the Andrew Carnegie Medal of Excellence for Nonfiction, um, which is put on partly by the American Libraries Association. Um, so congrats to Rachel for that. Also on the long list um, for the Medal of Excellence for Fiction is What We Fed to the Manticore, um, a collection of short stories by Talia Lakshmi Kuluri, um, who I interviewed a few weeks back. You can check that interview out. Also on the long list for nonfiction is An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us by Ed Young. Um, that will be the Storytelling Animals Book Club book for the month of December. Um, so that's next month, uh, December 13th. We will be discussing that. Um, if you want more info on the book club, just sign up for my free newsletter or go to my website um, and you can figure out how to join. Uh, the, the next uh, meeting of the book club will be at the end of this month, November 29th. That is almost a week after Thanksgiving. Um, so hopefully we won't conflict with any of your holiday plans. Um, and we'll be discussing Salvage the Bones by Jesmyn Ward. Um, Jesmyn Ward is uh, the author of multiple novels, including Sing, Unburied Sing, and both Salvage the Bones and Sing, Unburied Sing uh, won the National Book Award. Um, so she's a two-time winner, and this is her second novel and her first to win that award. Uh, came out in 2011, Salvage the Bones. So anyway, I hope you consider joining the book club. I hope you consider listening to some of those past interviews, but most of all, I hope you listen to and enjoy this interview. Um, if you like it, please leave a rating or send it to a friend or what have you. Um, and you can always support this podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash storytellingpod um, for early access, other perks, joining the book club, um, and also just to help keep this podcast going. Thank you so much to those who already subscribe. Um, thank you so much to those who are considering it. And thanks so much to all of you who are so much as listening. Here's Rachel.
here with Rachel E. Gross, author of Vagina Obscura, An Anatomical Voyage. Uh, Rachel, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Dayton. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited too. Um, so there's a lot of really interesting stuff about um, kind of the, the history and present of the science of the female reproductive system and um, is, is kind of maybe we'll talk about there's actually not a good term for um, what for that system as a whole, but uh, I thought we could talk, start not with humans, which will mainly be the focus, um, but with bird vaginas. Um, so you you talk about this scientist, Dr. Patty Brennan, um, who wrote that biologists had, quote, assumed that female reproductive anatomy was just so much plumbing that the male sperm had to traverse. In other words, females were assumed to be passive participants in reproduction. So... This, this is kind of a common theme that people just kind of assumed uh, in humans, non-humans, whatever, that the female body wasn't doing much. Uh, how did, so we'll, we'll get into why maybe, but how did we figure out uh, with, with, or how did Dr. Brennan figure out that this was not really the case? Yeah, so Patty's journey to bird vaginas was long and winding, kind of like the bird vagina. Um in some birds, but it started with a tinamou um, in Costa Rica, which is a, it's kind of like a really drab, um, grayish, bluish bird, and she was trying to study their mating, and she basically saw a penis come out of the male tinamou, uh, which she had never heard of, it had not been written about much, most birds, almost all of them, have a cloaca, which is like a multi-purpose hole, that means sewer, that does all of the uh, ejection of waste and the fun reproductive stuff. Uh, so she was like shocked that birds had penises, and where she kind of made the leap that very few others before had made was when she said, okay, so what's happening in the female birds in that case? Um, so it turned out people had not looked at the female side of things, and she ended up being the first person to really dissect a female duck vagina. Uh, and she did it very, very carefully. Um, she described it as like unwrapping a present, uh, and just kind of like peeling away tiny layers of skin, um, until she found that it was this kind of circling, winding labyrinth organ that was really doing quite a lot. Um, it was in conversation with the duck penis. It actually corkscrewed the opposite direction of the duck penis, which suggested to her some sort of conflict, like the bird body was trying to get some level of autonomy or control and like, you know, take that with a grain of salt. I don't mean that the bird had free will over its vagina. Um, but Essentially, there was so much going on here that there's no way you could say that the female body was passive or not doing much, um, and that really shocked everyone in her field. Yeah, this this theme of wait, no one had really checked this before, uh, or um, like maybe some male scientists had, had taken a quick look and thought they figured it all out, and uh, is something that kind of comes up a lot in the book in both human and non-human contexts, um, and that I think. Is pretty profoundly upsetting, but in this case, and mm. we'll talk more about that later with specific cases. But um, so some of the blame um, you rightly put upon Charles Darwin, who's who's someone that I you know 
have typically previously thought about fondly. Uh, Same here. Uh, you know, I'm, I like the theory of natural selection, evolution, and all that, but um, kind of had a, a lasting legacy of, of, of sexism in biological thought that um, he is, is partially responsible for. So, so what was Darwin's deal? <laughs> yeah, so I did not set out to take down Darwin at all. I also love Darwin and think he's one of the most incredible scientist writers and really just synthesized so many strains of thought. Like, he was a brilliant thinker. Um, I did find as I was researching that he had, you know, like all of us, some blind spots. Um, and one was he really did not like to talk about female genitals, and he really liked to describe the female as being, again, more passive, not as interesting. Um, he literally wrote that, like, woman where she attempts art, science, whatever, never reaches the same eminence as men. And he ascribed this to how evolution works. He said that um, men in the and male animals in the pursuit of mates have to be more clever and more um, kind of out there and flamboyant. And in doing so, they end up being more showy and active and dynamic and smart. So he really felt that females took second place. He kind of described them as infantile and almost like not as evolved as males. Um, so that really shows up in all of his writings and especially Descent of Man. Um, and the, yeah, the other omission that I noticed was even though he has a whole book on, um, on like the characteristics of sex and the role of sex in evolution, that's really his formulation of sexual selection. He doesn't talk about genitals. He wrote like a thousand pages on barnacle penises at one point, but when he became like the great Darwin, he stopped writing about genitals. He said that they were just like mechanical and functional. And so they weren't going to be these great secondary, uh, sexual characteristics like the peacock's tail. Um, and he especially avoided vaginas and vulvas. So he managed to just give the impression that vaginas and vulvas weren't doing anything in the mating dance, that they were not important. Um, and whenever genitals did show up, it was just to say that the male genitals were far more interesting and flamboyant. Um, and that kind of stymied researchers from then on kind of convince them not to look directly at genital evolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think this is a, a great and unfortunate example of how, how prejudice in science, and in this case, a sexist prejudice, um, can really have uh, dramatic effects in, in sort of blinkering how we view and understand how the world works, um, how, right. how the natural non-human world works, how human bodies work. Um, and, you know, as, as it turns out, right, the, the vagina, the vulva, the, the reproductive system more broadly isn't just kind of waiting there doing nothing. Uh, you, your whole book is about all the things it does. Um, and, uh, you know, you mentioned that female reproductive system is, is an incomplete term because it's not just reproduction. It's also, you know, pleasure. It's hormone regulation and health. Um, so what... Uh, how did you kind of become interested in, in this broader world um, and and decide to write a book about it? Yeah, um, 
Oh, I just remembered another fun fact, which is that Darwin was also, like, strenuously against birth control, um, specifically birth control for white Victorian women. So he was essentially eugenicist as well, um, because he thought that the poor and uncontrollable masses would overtake civilized white women. So that was kind of a shocker. Anyways. And he had, like, um, ten kids or something, right? Exactly. Yeah, he really walked his own talk, (laughs) practiced what he preached. Um but yeah, no, no word on what his wife thought of that. Um, okay. So yeah, so I was working at Smithsonian Magazine as a science editor, um, a few years ago, like 2016. And I've always liked writing about animal sex and reproductive biology. So I, I can't quite explain where that came from, except that like my mother's a doctor, my parents are all scientists, and I like making men uncomfortable. Um, but so I was really interested in those topics already. And then um, I launched this column on like unsung women in the history of science um, with this amazing writer, Layla McNeil. And it was just very clear that there was this theme of, um, first of all, like women being systemically kept out of science um, and pushed out of entering like higher education. And when they did manage to get over those hurdles, they were asking completely new questions. And often these are questions from a female perspective or questions that would help us understand their bodies, bodies like theirs that hadn't been asked. So it was becoming clear that the lack of information on women's bodies and bodies with this anatomy had a lot to do with the lack of women in science, Um, that those two things were connected. And I wanted to look at that intersection of why we, why we know what we know and why we don't know what we don't know, Um, whose voices were missing, what did they have to do to get their voices heard? And, you know, what are we still missing? Because we don't even know what questions we are asking. Right. So, um, there are several women scientists, you know, Dr. Patty Brennan among them, who we mentioned, who, who you sort of tell this story of the things that they were able to figure out that had been systematically either neglected by male scientists or just that they were the first ones to look into uh, or the most talented ones to look into or what have you. Were, uh, you know, uh, were there any, is there anyone who, who really stood out to you, resonated with you, uh, impressed you, or if you don't have an answer, I can ask a specific one, but I want to hear your answer. Yeah. I mean, I, I did sort of fall in love with a lot of the scientists in this book, not all of whom were women and a lot of whom were women of color. Um, but so it's very hard to pick just one, but I'll just go with the one on the top of my head, um, which is, uh, Linda Griffith, a bioengineer at MIT. Um, she, her story's always really stuck with me, and we were able to spend a lot of time in person together, um, and I was able to really hear her story over many days. So she kind of came of age professionally in, or let me restate that, um, she built her career in this pretty male-dominated world of bioengineering, where you are making organs from scratch out of the cellular building blocks. Um, She was responsible for something called the ear mouse, which a lot of biologists are familiar with. It's when scientists were able to grow an ear on the back of a lab mouse. Um, So she really built a name for herself, and she really learned to navigate this masculine landscape uh, at MIT. And the whole time, she was dealing with 
a really, really devastating case of endometriosis, which is when uh, tissue similar to the lining of the uterus starts growing outside it and can actually end up sticking all your reproductive organs together with scar tissue. Um, And her whole life, she was told the things that many women are familiar with, told that she was too stressed, too anxious, um, and that she was rejecting her role as a woman because she didn't want to have a kid yet. Um, Something like that was actually said. And I'd been studying like the era of Freud and these really backwards ideas that women are meant to have babies and if not, they will be beset by disease. And to see those themes in her story in the 90s and the 2000s was just shocking and really showed me that these threads have not died. This is happening up to the present. Um, So it took her over 30 years of living with that disease um, before she was able to say, hey, I have the tools to study tissue growth in the lab like no one has before. And bioengineers so far haven't cared about the uterus, even though it's actually like the most regenerative organ in the body, which is what this field is interested in. They just didn't care about it. Um, So she basically built the first lab, the first bioengineering lab to look at endometriosis and to understand the science of menstruation, which is a super cool process that involves uh, stem cells, immune cells, and this like symphony of hormones that causes the uterine lining every month to completely grow again with new blood vessels and then tell itself when to die and slough off and then grow again with no wound and no scarring. Um, So she was able to combine these two experiences in her life, having these tools and being at the forefront of this field um, and knowing that there was a huge knowledge gap in medicine and honestly, like a care gap um, about the uterus. And that's what she's doing now is demystifying the uterus um, through bioengineering. Yeah, so I think that bringing up endometriosis is sort of a a great example of, or great as an infuriating example of of how kind of lack of scientific interest in this uh, has has led to bad medical outcomes, and there are all sorts of like surgeries or disease treatments or or whatever that have been done, um, you know, either not been done or done wrong um, due to bad and prejudiced science that you bring up in the book. Yeah, I and sometimes it's not just like bad, super biased science. I think a lot of the scientists are well-meaning and like as smart as they can be. It's just that you come up in this hierarchical kind of paradigm that tells you what, in this case, the female body is capable of and what it's not. And you just don't know what you don't know. You need other voices Mm -hmm to fill it in, even people from other disciplines or people that can come in and be like, huh, how do we know that ovaries don't make new eggs? Why is this canon? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so glad you brought that up um, because that was one of the most surprising things to me in the book. um, Me too. Was, you know, I, I feel like I learned in, I don't know, high school biology or whatever that we're all born with, or not we're all people with eggs are born with uh, all the eggs that they will ever have. Um, they already have all of those eggs in the womb. Um, and you, you talk about some scientists who are 
starting to challenge that. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah. So uh, this was honestly the most shocking, like scientific advancement to me as well. I also had been taught that. I feel like we all have been. Mm-hmm. And so when I was researching and saw that there were like 15 years of research finding that human ovaries might make new eggs throughout the lifespan, I was like, how did I not know this? Like, I'm a science reporter. Why is nobody shouting about this? Even if it's controversial, even if it's not fully proven yet, that's just such a game changer. Uh, So I ended up digging into uh, this. It's a lab at Northeastern University that studies aging and ovarian biology. And they had been absolutely pummeled by their field of like ovarian biology. So there was a ton of drama, a ton of controversy, and only now are textbooks updating to say, well, actually, we're not positive because we know there are stem cells that are capable of growing into eggs in the ovary, but that's still super controversial. Um, So it became a story of why this took so long to be taken up, why people hadn't considered this, and uh, really, the all the eggs you, all the eggs you'll ever have is what you were born with, uh, idea came around in the 1950s and just became so baked into reproductive biology that it was not questioned. And it ended up taking um, two researchers who started in chicken ovary biology to say, hey, this, like, this could use another look. Uh, and I thought that was really fascinating because medicine is so siloed that people that study human ovaries do not really interact with people who study other animals' ovaries, even though there's so many similarities and so much you can learn. And the chicken in particular, who would have known? The common chicken is freaking fascinating. It has one ovary, the right ovary, the left one like shrivels away at birth. And this ovary is like a handful of yolks, it looks like, like a tomato stalk or something. Um, as like as you would think about the kind of eggs it has to make that get shelled on the way out the oviduct. Um, but they're super regenerative. So something that chicken scientists know that no one else does um, is that if you cut out a chicken's ovary, it will grow back. And sometimes it will even grow back into a testy. Um, but if it's an ovary, it'll have... Yeah, right. They're, I mean, I, I really like that because a lot of the book goes into breaking down the traditional boundaries of male and female that have, right. And, and scientifically, not just culturally, there are so many more similarities and overlap and ways in which we all have the same origins and our tissues have the same origins. Um, But so chicken ovaries, super regenerative, grow back eggs. So to those scientists, it was not crazy at all. It was just the way that biology worked. So they were able to come into the human field and say that this paradigm on which the whole field is based might be wrong, which opens up so many opportunities for um, helping like cancer survivors keep their fertility, for helping the hormone system go on longer and protect health. Um, It's just like all of reproductive technology is based on the idea that we have a limited number of precious eggs and that we must capture them and freeze them and save them. Um, so this was really a paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So speaking of eggs, you we mentioned sort of this common view that bird vaginas were mere plumbing. Um, 
egg cells in humans and otherwise were also considered passive. Uh, you quote an essay from the 1980s uh, that describes egg cells as, quote, a dormant bride awaiting her mate's magic kiss, which instills the spirit that brings her to life. <laughs> um, and this is, yeah, also it turns out, you know, there's more going on with the egg cell than, um, you know, the, the dominant narrative would have thought a few decades ago. So, so what's going on in the egg cell? Yeah, I think this was one of the first dominoes to fall um, in terms of often like feminist scientists pushing back on these traditional narratives. So it was um, it was actually in the 80s that uh, scientists started challenging the dormant egg cell idea. And basically, how do I put it? Um, like another big theme in the book is that you can't see what you're not looking for um, mm-hmm. and you see what you expect to see. So these kind of frameworks like female body passive, male body active really set the agenda for what questions scientists ask and what they look for. Um, And so they're content to say, yep, the egg looks pretty passive. We'll leave it at that. Uh, And in the past like few decades, we found that actually the egg is putting out chemical signals that allow the sperm to kind of sniff her out. Um, There are female fluids that are super important that help the sperm capacitate, which is like the removal of this protein helmet, so that, again, it can even reach the egg. Like, without these factors, the sperm would just swim in circles or flail about. Um, And when the two meet, it really is like kind of a mutual engulfing. Um, The egg is covered in like microvilli, like little tentacles that kind of pull or harpoon the sperm in and like bring it into its membranes and folds. And there's this beautiful transformation that happens to the egg when it kind of decides on a sperm and pulls it in where the outside kind of turns into skeleton and hardens so that it prevents any other sperm from getting there. Um, So it really is, again, like a mutual dance, a conversation with two halves. And like that all sounds very logical to us or at least to me now, but mm-hmm. it was something that scientists were just blocked from studying because of these assumptions. And then another thing you brought up in, in your previous answer was about kind of this blurring line between um, male and female that emerges in, in some of these studies. Um, maybe the the first arena in which we can talk about that is just kind of this the study of of glands and, and hormones. Yeah. Um, yeah. How, can you tell us about that? Cause that was, there's some pretty wild stuff in that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. I think that's a really good example. So, you know, I look a lot at the history of how these organs were mapped or discovered or figured out. And it was really interesting to see how estrogen and testosterone were discovered and immediately coded as like the male hormone and the female hormone. So estrogen comes from this word estrus, which means like this impassioned frenzy as if you've been stung by a fly. And that was apparently the essence of femaleness because that was the female hormone. Um, and it was just kind of funneled into all these pharmaceutical roles. Like it was used first for menopause treatment and later for transgender healthcare. Um, and it was like, this is femaleness, so we'll give you more of it, and it'll make you more feminine. Um, and the same with testosterone on the male side. Well, it turns out that these hormones, like, are, they're produced in both bodies, so they're both 
super necessary. Estrogen is actually really important to um, sperm development, as well as a million other things. And testosterone is really important to ovulation and brain health and bone health. Um, so actually, sorry, I think I misstated that. Let me just say that one more time. Um, so estrogen is super important in men because it not only maintains like many different body systems, but it's important for bone closure. So if you don't have it or you can't uptake it, your bones don't close and you end up having this condition where they grow longer and longer. Um, and testosterone is super important to ovulation. So like egg development, as well as like brain and heart health. Um, so really these are more like growth hormones and they're just kind of different ratios that are incredibly necessary to overall health. And the fact that they've, again, been coded as male and female sex hormones has meant that many of their effects have not even been researched yet. Um, so they're just far more like multifaceted and versatile um, than one would assume. And yeah, and I, I feel like that's a good example of how a certain assumption or a certain binary framework has prevented us from seeing how intertwined we are. Mm-hmm. And then people kind of took that, though, and, and ran with it a bit, um, or at least sort of took their knowledge of what these different hormones could do. Um, and all these kind of famous people from around 100 years ago were getting these operations to insert hormone-releasing glands in their bodies that were meant to stave off aging. Uh, yes. <laughs> how, what was the rationale behind that? Oh my gosh, yes. Um, the golden age of glands. Right, so when glands were first discovered and found to release these these hormones, which are like chemical signals that go throughout the body, throughout the whole bloodstream, they were thought of as very miraculous and this key to vitality. And like, interestingly, especially for men, it was like manliness and vigor and um, youth were all mixed up together. So uh, yeah, there were a there were a lot of hucksters. Um, another big theme is that when science doesn't fully know something, um, the snake oil sellers will yes. all come in and claim to know it. So, you know, an early version of goop. Um, so all these surgeons were saying we can put monkey testicles on your body or younger men's testicles, and they will produce more magical testosterone and keep you younger and improve your sex life and like make you a new man. Uh, so that was really common. Um, less common was the female version, but it was the same idea. There, there were doctors that wanted to put sheep ovaries in women. Um, there were also doctors who wanted to radiate the ovary because they thought they could like kill off the non-estrogen producing cells so that the estrogen producing cells would proliferate and make you young and beautiful and more female again. Um, so yeah, that was a real period of American history that happened uh, in a dearth of fuller knowledge about hormones. But yeah, that, that's also a great example of how we really attributed all of these specific things to one substance that we didn't have much basis for. Yeah. And uh, you talk about how, you know, doctors and pharmacists were trying to sell estrogen to women uh, as to, to treat menopause. And mm. kind of, as you put it first, they had to sort of 
convince them that menopause was a disease. Um, mm. And so you talk about these ads, some of which are geared toward women and some of them are geared toward husbands that are kind of like, you know, fellas, like work is hard enough, even without a, an old wife, like buy her estrogen. Um, yes. And that's, that's a slight paraphrase, but less than much. you think. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I guess what, uh, what were these ads? I mean, estrogen, but did, was there any basis in anything with these ads or? I think it's like you said, when, a substance is discovered and purified and can be sold, then pharmacy often thinks like, what could we sell this as? What is this a solution to? And menopause ended up being framed as like a loss of womanliness and a a deficiency disease uh, as a way to sell estrogen as the cure. Um, So they positioned this binary of, what happens when you don't have enough estrogen and what happens when you get estrogen. That was only very loosely based on reality, but became the framework through which we all thought about it. Um, I think menopause is still seen as a deficiency disease um, to a lot of people today, even though it's a completely natural transition in every person's life who has ovaries and a uterus. Um, And it kind of contributes to that devaluing of women as they age and saying that their ovaries fail or exhaust themselves. Whereas actually um, ovaries after menopause have been found with stem cells in them and ovaries after menopause still produce small amounts of estrogen and testosterone. Yeah. So, so maybe let's move on from the snake oil salesman salesman uh, and into some of the, you know, positive things that are coming from all this. Um, And one of them is uh, sort of talking about how, um, you know, better science, more committed doctors um, are helping inform improvements in um, surgery for trans women. What, uh, why was it important to to include this, this in the book and and what are kind of the more recent uh, improvements in in this realm? Yeah. So, The journey of the book um, kind of does end up exploding the gender-sex binary in several ways, but it was really important for me to include a history of trans women and and the procedure that has been very important to this medical history, which is the creation of a new vagina. Um, I think trans women have pushed medicine to get access to resources, to improve techniques, and to treat them with basic humanity for so many decades that they have really been behind a lot of these innovations, um, while generally not credited. As I looked into the origins of this surgery, the way it was described was, again, like really striking. Um, A surgeon who is a trans woman herself, Dr. Marcy Bowers, said basically in the 60s, if you got this surgery, it was just like the goal was to make a hole for penetrative intercourse. Um, not much else, not much consideration for pleasure, beauty, the clitoris. That was more of an afterthought, she described it. Um, and today, it's just such a different landscape. So she really thinks of herself as a sculptor, and she's really trying to give 
people the body that they want, and she cares about their embodied experience. Um, pleasure and the clitoris are central, which is a totally a 180, um, and that has created new innovations again in the surgery. So to think about making a new organ, it's interesting because you have to define what that organ is and what it's for. So in the past, that's what the vagina was thought to be for, like penetrative intercourse. And now there's this recognition that this is a complex organ that self-lubricates, that has a very intricate um, system of nerves and erectile tissue, uh, and that has a its own microbiome, its own kind of layer of protection from the outside world. And that's what surgeons are now trying to recreate, which I would say is creating new discoveries about all vaginas. Um, so mm-hmm. there's definitely a positive feedback loop between this work and all the other kind of vagina science I talk about in the rest of the book. Um, and there's just this new way of considering this part of the body and kind of centering the patient and what they want out of this experience and out of their body. Yeah, I, I think that is obviously a very positive trend. Um, and I'm curious kind of more broadly, you know, in all the scientific advances um, that you're discussing in the book, which maybe practical applications of, of this new knowledge do you think are most exciting or some of the things that you're looking forward to in the years to come? I'm sorry to be annoying. Can I add one thing to the last answer, yes, Dayton? please. Do. Okay. Um, the other thing is that these surgeons, when they describe actually doing this surgery, it's actually possible because all of our genital tissues come from the same origins. So every single part of the penis is homologous to the clitoris. We all have these erectile bodies. There's even a shaft and a glands of the clitoris. So the, like, nub, as people say, the part you can see and touch is just really the tip of the iceberg. It's less than 10% of the organ. And because these surgeons understand that and understand all types of genitalia, it's easier to mold one into the other and to know how to use the erectile tissues of, say, a penis to create a functional, uh, fully working and like aesthetically attractive clitoris. Um, so again, it kind of gets at these similarities between all bodies that are not always obvious. Yeah, it's important. Yeah. Okay, next one. Um, Man, I'm excited about so many facets of this research. Um, One that came to mind is the study of the vaginal microbiome. So, Yes. yes, like gut microbiome has been super hot for like more than 10 years at this point, and the vaginal microbiome lagged behind for a few factors. Um, One, women's bodies, not as interesting, um, and vaginas, ill, gross, um, and vagina problems not as important as deadly gut bacteria. Uh, That's me paraphrasing. But now that we are up in the vaginal microbiome, there's this whole, like a whole other planet, as I call it, um, with different ecosystems and really important diverse microbes that kind of come together to protect this this kind of opening between you and not you. It's like an extension of your immune system, essentially. Um, so there's now work to see if we can optimize or terraform vaginal microbiomes using microbiome transplants and eventually synthetic versions, which is exactly what we did with the gut, um, which have the potential to solve a lot of diseases, a lot of infections, and a lot of things that threaten just health, 
well-being, um, sexuality, and fertility. Um, so these are things that women have been living with for a long time and that medicine really hasn't devised any good um, solutions for. And I, I go into, at the beginning of the book, my own experience with this, um, something called bacterial vaginosis, or BV, which one in three women before menopause have, and which has all sorts of unpleasant effects and is like a recurrent infection. But again, medicine has no good cure for. So understanding this ecosystem and being able to... Um, change it reliably in, in a positive direction, I think will improve the lives of so many people. Yeah, that is, that was an exciting part of the book. Um, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the clitoris a couple answers ago, because um, that's the, the first chapter of your book. Uh, actually, the first two, I believe. Um, yes. And the, yeah, there's a lot of the history you talk about is sort of, you know, all these sort of male scientists debating whether it even exists and Italian doctor, you know, two different ones, I think, like claiming yeah. to have discovered it and dissecting the cadaver. And it's like, did, is that, did you really think you discovered it? Um, <laughs> I'm just imagining all the women in the background just shaking their heads. <laughs> right. Um, but I think uh, what's fun about your book is, you know, the subtitles an anatomical voyage um, and you have kind of these fun illustrations throughout of that are like framing it as sort of a journey through the body. Mm. Um, and I'm just sort of curious, like how framing it, where framing it as a voyage came from and, and what kind of with the illustrations and with that framing kind of what that, what you got out of that. Yeah. I love that question. Um, two things. One, as I was just starting to get into this research, I was keeping a tally of how many women's body parts are named after men. Um, so people know the fallopian tubes, that's Gabriel Fallopio. He also named the vagina, which means sheath. Um, but there are all these other like little structures like the Skeen's gland um, or the G-spot, named after Ernst Grafenberg, a German-Jewish mm -hmm. gynecologist. Um, so, like, basically, I was just picturing all these kind of flags being planted in the female body and this idea of the female body as territory being explored, discovered, and conquered. All of that in scare quotes. Um, and I, I think I ended up kind of drawing a map of this. Um, but at the same time, I thought that this journey um, exploration theme, which was kind of clearly coming from this more colonialist uh, perspective could really be inverted and used for true like wonder and discovery. And I'm a big sci-fi nerd. So when I structured the book, I was thinking of journey to the center of the earth. And this is like a journey to the center of the female body, literally from the outside in, um, and then kind of like zooming in on the egg cell um, and then zooming out to like the uterus in a very kind of Miss Frizzle journey type yes. of way. <laughs> yeah, that's those are some of my inspirations. Um, and so, yeah, it was taking the journey to the inside of the body and reframing it to show the new way that these scientists are reimagining these organs um, rather than their use for male pleasure or just for making babies, um, their role in regeneration, immunity and pleasure and what they do for the body that they're in. Um, so that was what we were trying to do with the illustrations. And that's this incredible artist, Armando Vebe, who also did the cover. Um, and it was sort of, yeah, sort of a fantastic world vibe. 
Yeah. It's like my dream to have a preteen graphic novel version of <laughs> this journey. I know some stuff would not make it in, but I feel like we all need to be introduced to our changing bodies from a place of curiosity and wonder and not shame and fear. Yeah. That'd be awesome. But both to have the to have the graphic novel but also to be not taught shame and fear about your body. I know. What a concept. So revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else on any of this you want to add? I mean, there's so much more in the book. I, I could ask you a million more things, but it would just be like, this was cool. Tell me about it. This cool. <laughs> I should leave something for people yeah. to read the book. That's true. We and do so, want them to read the book. <laughs> anything else you want to add, though? Yeah. I mean, I could, like, I could go into why female reproductive uh, system is not, like, a great term, but... I don't have to. I'm Actually, yeah, let's do it. I yeah. brought that up earlier and never Yeah, heard, that's what so. I was thinking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Circle back. Yeah, I used to use that term a lot in my like early research, and it was the only way I could describe like these pelvic organs that are all involved in like reproduction, pleasure, um, and it turns out a bunch of other things. But like as I went on like each of those words started to bother me and feel incomplete. So first female, um, I ended up talking to like non-binary people, both trans men and women. Um, and basically people that had some or all of these organs who were not women or didn't consider themselves women. Um, so also people who have had hysterectomies and intersex folks. Um, so like clearly female was not kind of expansive enough to cover the people we're talking about. And then reproductive, uh, there was just this assumption in so much of the medicine that all the uterus and ovaries did was support a baby, um, to the point that in the NIH, the only um, branch that's dedicated to women's health and just like the health of vaginas and vulvas is actually um, nested within the children's health section. So it's like women's bodies only matter in as far as they support the next generation and babies. Um, And as we were talking about, I was finding out that the ovaries here are supporting body-wide health and like every system in the body. The uterus is super involved in immunity and regeneration. And the microbiome is again, like an extension of your immune system. And you know, that's to say nothing about the clitoris's central role in pleasure. So reproductive really just continues to narrow the focus onto women as like walking wombs or baby machines. And I argue that that has also shaped the science. It has shaped what medicine has studied, cared about, and giving resources to. There's quite a lot of research and money going into infertility and fertility studies. Um, there has been a lot less on some of the other things that we've mentioned. System is okay. I'm okay with system. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I, I was definitely trying to think of some alternative terms, and I'm not there yet. I like to say vagina at all, or vagina <laughs> and friends, uh, like companions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that wouldn't work in all situations. And I know writers who like the word pussy as a way to refer to all the outer genitalia. And again, that totally might work for you personally, but in the medical world, when we're talking about language that's like easily understood and legitimized um, between doctors, I think we still are waiting for a better word. Yeah, actually, um, Maybe I, I should ask about the title, too, jumping off that. Ooh. 
Uh, Love that. When did, at what stage did you come up with it? Uh, obviously it couldn't be vagina at all obscura. Um, but yeah, what, uh, where did that title come from? Yeah, right, right, right. That's a great, um, a great question because after I just said all of that about how we misuse these terms and they don't apply to everything, here I am with a book called Vagina Obscura. Um, so I'm definitely using vagina as like a metonymy, I think it's called mm-hmm. here as sort of a stand in for the whole. And really like it has the name recognition and I'm like making a nod to that. Um, but the idea behind it came from a camera obscura. So that was like these early pinhole cameras that were a really important development in the technology of photography. And as many people like remember from school, it sort of projects an image from the outside um, onto a wall um, through this pinhole. And that's really cool. But one thing that happens is that the the light gets distorted and you end up with either an upside down picture or a picture that's really small or really fuzzy or grainy or blurry. And so what I was thinking was that there's a specific lens and it gives you real information, but in doing so it kind of warps the picture or it has to narrow the focus. And to me, that's how the female body has been viewed by medicine for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, What we learned from all of those Uh, explorers and discoverers and Italian anatomists was often real knowledge. It was just coming from a very narrow perspective, um, one that was really concerned with male pleasure and female fertility and sort of they saw what they wanted to see and what they cared about. And so my argument is that at this point, we need to change the lens. So think of like portrait mode on your camera. Um, We've been zooming in on one element and we need to now really look at what we've considered the background, what we've kind of blurred out because that's where all of the important discoveries and new things to learn really are. That's a great answer. Um, Great question. uh, Great title. Thank you. Uh, And yeah. So now is there anything else that you, uh, you want to add? Nah, I don't think so. Um, Well then, yeah. yeah. Thank you so much uh, for your time and for writing the book. And yeah, I really enjoyed this. It's Rachel E. Gross, author of Vagina Obscura and Anatomical Voyage. Thanks so much for having me, Dayton, and reading so carefully. Those were such like well-researched questions. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. Uh, that was Rachel E. Gross. Um, you can find more information about her book in the episode description. Um, and yeah, if you liked this podcast, Please consider liking, subscribing, and supporting financially on Patreon. Um, Hope to see you, some of you, at one of our next book clubs, and hope to hope you all have a good day. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!